0: Well, good morning, Soul City Church. How you doing? 9 a.m. Yeah. Doing good. Awesome. The lively spiritual conversation that you were just having there. Uh, so good to see you. My name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City. So for those of you who are here, those of you who are actually watching, literally all over the world, watching online right now, and maybe listening to our podcast later, I'm so glad that you decided to spend this time with us. But more importantly, for you to spend this time with God. Our hope is that over the course of our time together you would have an undeniable, transformational experience with Jesus. You would not be the same walking out of these doors and back into your life than you are right now in this moment. For the next couple of weeks, we are going to be talking about the origin of family. What does God mean when he talks about family? And what kind of family is God inviting us into? And everything I'm going to talk to you about today, the, the stuff I really want us to get today, I want to say a little disclaimer up front. What we're going to be talking about today, honestly, is best experienced rather than explained. I'm going to do the best job I can. Like I've worked hard, prepared, like I did my job to prepare notes, but I can't possibly explain to you the heart and the depths of God's love for you until you experience it for yourself. And that really is our heart and our hope that you would experience God's perfect love for you. Now, for the next couple of weeks as we talk about family, I also know that when it comes to the idea of family, even just when I say the word family, we have a thousand different ideas and experiences around that word family. A lot of different emotions come to the surface just when I say that word family. It means something different to every single one of us. Maybe for you, you come from a family where Your parents stayed together. Maybe you come from a family where your parents didn't stay together or one was never really around. Maybe you come from a family where you were the star of your family and it all makes sense to you why you would be. Maybe you come from a family where you never really felt like you fit in to your family. Maybe you grew up in a family that went to church. Maybe you grew up in a family that didn't go to church. Maybe family is a place of safety and home for you, or maybe family is a place where you feel intense and immense pain and even abuse. Maybe you haven't even ever thought about how formative your family is on you and how you see things around you, or maybe you're still stuck in patterns and relational dynamics that you learned from your family. See, it's, it's impossible for me to name every kind of family dynamic that's here in this room or watching online, but that doesn't actually mean that we don't have common ground, that even though all of our family experiences are different, it doesn't mean that we don't actually have common ground with each other. See, here's what's actually true of all of us right now in this moment. All of us, all of us, Can they say this is true? This is that not a single one of us in this room comes from a perfect family. That's just true. No, No matter how hard your parents tried to convince you, you did not come from a perfect family. That's true of all of us. Not one person in this room we're listening, comes from a perfect family, no matter how hard your parents may have tried. And what is also true, the common ground that we share, is that all of us are actually invited into a new kind of family that actually helps us heal from our family of origin here on earth. A new kind of family that actually makes us whole and helps us turn around and love our families for what they actually are, and helps us form new families, transforming families rooted in the reality of God's love. I want to show you my family. This is the family that I come from. Put a picture up on the screen. (laughs) Look at those those beautiful individuals up there. I mean, this is clearly, you can guess the date, right around 1970-something, right around here. And uh, that's my family. That's my dad, Steve Stevens, my mom, Janine, my sister, Robin, Back right corner is my brother Bob, next to him is my brother Scott, then my brother Justin who wasn't really aware we were taking pictures, was talking or something, and then the really handsome one in the bottom uh, right corner there, that's me, that's uh, Jarrett Stevens, that's me. This is my family, it's the family that I actually uh, grew up in, and I don't know, if, like you can look at that collar for a second that I'm wearing right there. At like six years old, I put fly in the butterfly collar, that's all I want to say about that. And maybe you caught a second ago that my dad's name is Steve Stevens. That's his name. Steve Stevens, so good he had to say it twice. Does that not sound like a car salesman name to you? I'm Steve Stevens. Fun fact, my dad's a car salesman. That's actually what he did for most of my life. So it worked out perfectly as far as he's concerned. My dad actually came to faith, said yes to Jesus, and started following Jesus uh, later in his life, and this had a radical effect on me and my brother, Justin. The older three kids were from my dad's first marriage, and they didn't grow up with a dad who went to church, but my brother, Justin, and I grew up with a mom and dad who went to church and were actively involved in church, and little did butterfly collar me know that that reality would radically shape my view of God that my family was forming my view of God. Most of my assumptions about God were being formed by that group of people and they actually had no idea that it was happening at the time. And the same is true of you and your family. They're one of the single greatest contributors to your view of God, your assumptions about God. So before we even get into the text that we're gonna look at today, I think a really important question for us to consider is this, what do you think of when you think of God? What do you think of when you think of God? In fact, here's how I want you to think about this for a second. I actually want you to close your eyes. Go ahead, close your eyes. It's only going to be for a couple seconds, so you shouldn't fall asleep. So go ahead and close your eyes. If you're listening to the podcast and you're driving, just play along. Don't close your eyes. Keep driving. But if you're in this room or watching online, I want you to close your eyes right now, and I want you to think as hard as you can. What's the image of God that you have? Close your eyes and imagine. What is the, how do you see God? What do you think of? When you think of God, what's the image that comes to mind? Maybe it's hard for you. Maybe God is just a kind of a vague cloud, just kind of a mist. You can't quite put a picture to it. Maybe maybe for you God is got kind of an old, he's kind of old. He's got the white beard. Looks like he's auditioning for Santa. Maybe that's your view of God. Maybe for you it's hard to imagine what God is like because he feels so detached and so distant or maybe even so disappointed in you maybe your image of god is a god who's angry at you what do you think of when you think of god this is really important stuff and i want you to keep your eyes closed or close them again if you would right now keep your eyes closed for a second as you're trying to think about what you think of when you think of god here's a question i want you to consider what do you think god thinks of when he thinks of you What do you think God actually thinks of when he thinks of you? Does he see you as just a nameless, faceless person in a mass of millions of people? Does he see you as an employee, a good employee, a bad employee, soldier in his army? What do you think God thinks of when he thinks of you? All right, you can open your eyes because here's what's really fascinating is that there are lots of different images used to describe God throughout the Bible, but the most consistent image that's used to describe God, in fact, the image used by Jesus himself was that of father, of perfect parent. And the image most used to describe you and me, regardless of what you might think or how your family might have formed your view of God and of yourself, the image used to describe you and me and all of us is family. It's all throughout the Bible. God is a perfect parent and we are his family. Think about some of the language that maybe you never even paid attention to. You maybe you've heard from your past or you're familiar with. We see and say God is our father and Jesus his Son, and that we're referred to throughout the Bible as the children of God, the family of God. In fact, all throughout the Bible, and specifically in the New Testament, when people are referring to each other, they refer to each other as brother and sister. This language, this imagery, this metaphor of family is all throughout the Bible. This most intimate of relationships, this most formative of frameworks that we have—that's actually what God uses to describe who He is and who you are, and how we are to relate to him. When you think about what God thinks about, when you think about how God thinks of you, and I don't know if you know this, but God is always thinking about you, even when you're not thinking about him. But when God thinks about you, he sees you as his son. He sees you as his daughter. He delights in you. He loves you. He chooses you. You're his beloved child, and he is, as the Bible says, a perfect parent. That's the relationship that we're invited to have with God. This is the relationship that Jesus had with God while he was on earth. In fact, at the moment of his baptism, before his last three years of his life, of his public ministry, there's a moment where God literally splits the heaven and says to Jesus in Matthew three seventeen that a voice came from heaven and said, this is my what? This is my... Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Not this is my servant, this is my ambassador, this is my spokesperson, this is my son. This is the language used all throughout the Bible. This is how Jesus related to God. He knew he was God's son and God said, I love him and I'm so pleased with him. And those words are so important because of where they happen in the life of Jesus. This was before any teachings, any sermons before any miracles, any healings. This is before the cross and what God did in an empty tomb. Before all of that and above all of that, God says, this is who you are. You're my child and I love you and I'm so pleased with you just because of who you are. Because that's who I am. That's what I do. I love, like a perfect parent. In fact, I want you to get how important this is. So I want you to grab a Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you brought a Bible with you or you have it on your phone, awesome. You can go there. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, why don't you look right under your seat and you should be able to find a one of our Soul City Bibles. In the Soul City Bible, you can turn to page 916. That will get you there fast. I had a fun moment last week after one of the gatherings where someone asked if it was okay to steal a Bible from Soul City. If you don't own a Bible, it's always okay to steal a Bible from Soul City. In fact, nothing makes us happier than if you don't own a Bible, we want you to steal a Bible. We just ask that's the only thing you steal today. Just limit it to the Bibles if that's okay. If we can kind of have that agreement, then steal away. But in Romans chapter 8, we see a picture of of this. It was repeated all throughout Scripture. Now, some context on this. The book of Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, wrote most of the, about half of the New Testament, large percentage of the New Testament. It was a letter to a church in the city of, anyone want to guess? Rome, right? Romans, Rome. So right in the city uh, of Rome was this church that was growing and growing and growing with these Jesus followers. This years after Jesus had died and raised by God from the dead, ascended into heaven. And in the heart of this city of Rome was this little group of Jesus followers. Now, Rome was at that time uh, the center of the empire, the occupying empire. It was a center of culture and all kinds of different religions and idol worship and all kinds of stuff. And in the middle of all of that is this group of people trying to grasp what it means to have a relationship with God. And this is what Paul says to them in Romans 8 verse 14. He says that for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the what? Are the children of God. Now let's say it again like we actually mean it and might actually believe it. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. You might want to circle that. They're the children of God. When you enter into a relationship with Jesus, this is what you instantly enter into, this kind of relationship. This is how God sees you. It's what he thinks of you when he thinks about you. You are his child because that's who you are to him. That's just who you are. This is how he relates to us and how we're invited to relate to him. Now, how do we know that we are the children of God? What proof, what evidence do we have that we are the children of God? Paul goes on in verse 15. He says that the spirit you receive, the Holy Spirit that you receive, does not make you what? Does not make you slaves. You might want to circle that word. Pay attention to that. We'll come back to that in a moment. It doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your what? Your... Adoption, circle that into sonship. And by Him, by the Spirit, by this new relationship that we can have with God, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, I want to just kind of break down this verse because a lot of things happen in this one verse. We see at the beginning that Paul says, The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves. Paul uses the imagery of of slavery. Slavery is something that God never condones. It's an evil in this world that God would never ever condone. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in our world as we all know that it didn't exist in this time. So Paul uses this imagery that people were familiar with especially in a city like Rome. They were familiar with this concept, this idea of the relationship between a slave and a master. He uses that to teach us about who we are and who God is and specifically who we're not and who God isn't. He says that This is not the relationship we have with God because a slave has no relationship with his master, with her master, nor does a master have relationship with their slave. Masters were often, not always, but often cruel and cold and callous towards their slaves. Slaves, as we know from our nation's own dark and dehumanizing history, are often viewed as Property not a part of a family, property. So when a master died, a slave would never imagine receiving an inheritance. They would never imagine receiving of their cut when their master would die. No, in fact, we know that oftentimes slaves were considered a part of the inheritance that would be handed on in their family. So what Paul is saying here is that's not this. That's not the relationship that you were invited into with God, where you live in a constant state of fear of a God who is demanding and detached and disinterested in who you are. No, Paul says that when we enter into relationship with Jesus, that we are actually adopted into his family. And he uses the word sonship. Did you catch that there? Sonship. This actually has nothing to do with gender. It has to do with status that we have this new status of sonship. Now, there, there were, uh, in that day, it was very, very, very uncommon in Jewish culture to adopt anyone from outside of the family. In fact, it was unthinkable in Jewish culture that you would bring an outsider into that most intimate circle of family. So those who'd kind of grown up Jews in that day, the, the adoption was not a part of their story. Same with Greek culture in that day. They had kind of no precedent for adoption. But in Roman culture... Adoption was not only accepted, but it was actually celebrated. That when someone was adopted into a family, they were given the full rights, that they were officially and unconditionally and irreversibly a part of that family now. And when Paul talks about sonship, that's exactly what he's talking about, that they are brought in as an equal part of the family. And in fact, in Roman culture, you didn't have to wait till sort of the patriarch would die to receive your inheritance. As soon as you were part of the family, everything the family owned was equally yours. And so Paul's using uh, A beautiful picture here that would be familiar for those who lived in Rome about what it means to come into relationship with God. When someone was adopted in that Roman culture that day, all their previous debts were canceled out. Their former social status was elevated. They were a part of now, fully a part of a new family. And when they would refer to their mother or father, they wouldn't call him uh, Mr. Stevens or Mrs. Stevens, because, you know, they, they didn't deserve the right to call them that. They would call him Mommy, Daddy, Mom, Dad. That's why Paul uses that word Abba. Did you see that there, that, that we can cry out to God and say, Abba, Father. So he's using a metaphor from Roman culture, but then he pulls this ancient and intimate Aramaic word, Abba. And that word Abba literally translates to Daddy. We've talked about that before here at Soul City Church. That Abba literally means daddy. In fact, it's the same word that Jesus used at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Are you familiar with the Lord's Prayer? Maybe you grew up saying it, reciting it, singing it, right? Our Father who art in heaven, right? Maybe you grew up in a church. Nope. Okay, just me. So you grew up in a church, like a very official, very formal. That's not actually the word that Jesus used when he started the Lord's Prayer. The word when he says our Father is Abba changes the whole meaning of that prayer, doesn't it? by starting by saying, Daddy, Daddy in heaven. What a cool juxtaposition. Daddy in heaven, blessed be your name. Holy is your name. What a beautiful picture that Paul paints for us here. For those of you who are parents, do you remember the first time you heard one of your kids say, Mama, Dada? It's like you felt like at that moment, your work here on earth is done. You just have no idea you got a lot more like to go. But still, that moment feels incredibly powerful and significant. Mama, dada. Jimmy Fallon tells a story when their first daughter was being born. He, was so, he wanted their daughter to say dada as her first word so badly. So he would go around when his wife wasn't around and describe everything in the house, call everything in the house dada. <laughs> I'm not kidding. This is the story. He would say to the diapers, dada. And he would say, like, to the food, dada. And the dog walking by, dada. And he tried over and over and over again, basically to brainwash his child to having her first words be dada. Anyone want to guess what her first words were? Oh. Mama did not work. Because kids know, they see right through it. That's the word that Paul says, that's how we pray to God. Daddy, Abba. This intimate, knowing, that kind of relationship that only kids can have with their parents, and in this case, a perfect parent in God. Paul goes on to say this in Romans eight sixteen. He says, listen, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are what? We are God's children. He says it again and again and again. Why does he say it so many times? Because we so often miss this that this is who we actually are. The Spirit of God given to us by Jesus the Son tells us that we are the children of God, that He is our perfect parent, that you are loved, that you are accepted, that you are wanted, desired by God, chosen by God to be His beloved child, His beloved Son, and his beloved daughter. God has a family. Did you know that? God has a family. And you are created to be a part of it, to know him that way. Now, what makes this imagery to me so interesting, all throughout the Bible, it's woven all throughout the Bible, is that the Bible is also simultaneously filled with all kinds of destructive damaging, dysfunctional, imperfect families. In fact, it's difficult, if not downright impossible to find a happy, healthy, God-honoring family in the Bible. I don't know if you ever paid attention to that before either. There's a lot of messed up families in the Bible. This should be of great encouragement to you and your family. Think about it. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, they had two sons, the very first siblings in the Bible. There was a rivalry between Cain and Abel, and Cain murders Abel. That's in the first couple pages that (laughs) happens. Then you can go on to see Abraham and Sarah were promised by God that he would give them a family one day but they could not wait for the promise of God and God's perfect timing. And so they began to take matters into their own hands, and it led to all kinds of drama between them. You look at Joseph and his brothers. We've studied here at Soul City Church. There was such a hatred of his brothers towards Joseph that they staged his murder, and that's not all, sold him off into slavery. You used to argue with your sibling about the top bunk. This is some extreme measures here. In fact, the first civil war in the kingdom of Israel, not long after Israel had been formed as a nation, the first civil war was between a father and a son, King David and his son Absalom. In fact, Jesus himself comes from an imperfect family. The Bible tells the story of when Jesus was 12 years old, they were visiting the temple, and his parents forgot Jesus at the temple. And the text says it took them a day to realize (laughs) that they had left him behind. Think about it. That means they're a day into their journey and went, where's Jesus? And then they had to take a day to come back and get him. That's Jesus's family. Now, I remember when I was 10 years old, I got lost at Chuck E. Cheese once. It was a traumatic event. This is back when Chuck E. Cheese meant something in our culture. It was a two-story Chuck E. Cheese. The the ball pit was like a football field-sized ball pit, and I got lost and separated from my parents, and I thought I was going to have to live in Chuck E. Cheese for the rest of my life. It was a terrifying moment for me, but it lasted maybe 20 minutes, not two days. See, what we see is this perfect picture that God paints all throughout the Bible on a canvas of broken families, and that's actually no accident. It's meant to serve as a holy juxtaposition, that we're supposed to see that there is a compare and contrast of what is with what could be, that God's family actually transcends and can even transform your family. God uses the backdrop of imperfect families, just like yours, just like mine, to paint a picture of what family could be with a perfect parent in him, where we love him and are known by him as his children, and we love each other as brother and sister. That's what God says we get to choose into. Now, you didn't get to choose into the family you were born into. I remember when uh, we were younger, my brother Justin pictured earlier. uh, Justin, whenever my parents would do something that he didn't like, he would say to them, I'm just gonna go live with the Robinson family in Hawaii. And they were really kind of like confused by this, and they go, okay, I don't know who that is. We'd been to Hawaii once as kids, but anytime he'd get frustrated or disappointed with my parents or with our family, anytime he got fed up, you know, at nine years old, which happens a lot, he would say, I, you know what, I'm just gonna go live with the Robinsons in Hawaii. And he said this for years. It's concerning to a little, certain level. And eventually he stopped saying. he kind of grew out of that. It wouldn't be till like 20, 25 years later, we had a family reunion in Hawaii, and we went on a little tour, and we came to find out that one of the largest landowners in all of Hawaii is a family by the name of the Robinsons. So somehow, somewhere, Justin got in his mind that that was the family to live with. And I don't blame him. I I would have gone with him if he would have given. We don't know where he heard about the Robinsons, but clearly he had an emotional connection to them. Now listen, you did not get to choose the family that you were born into. You had no say in the matter. Think about it. You couldn't even talk at the time. But you are actually given a choice when it comes to a God who chooses you. God chooses you. He chooses you. He says, I want you to be a part of my family. Now, you have a choice in the matter, whether or not you will actually open yourself up to and receive that love from God. But all of us have a choice in that family. And it's really important that when it comes to understanding what God has to do with our families here on earth, with the family that he's actually inviting us into, it's really important that we don't confuse the family we got with the family of God. They're two very different things. Don't ever confuse the family you got or that you were born into, as good or bad, healthy or unhealthy as they may be. Don't confuse them with the family of God that all of us are actually created and invited to be a part of. Listen to me. This is going to be some groundbreaking stuff for you. See if you can stay with me. Your parents are not God. I know that's shocking to hear. Your parents are not God. And God is not your parents. He is so much more. Do not limit him To them. He loves you perfectly and unconditionally, more than your parents ever could, no matter how hard they tried or how many times they got it right or how many times they didn't get it right. God loves you perfectly. And because of your belovedness, He invites you into loving everyone else you know, everyone else you ever meet the same, like a brother or sister, to extend that love to them. Now, again, this is utterly transformational stuff when you get this of who God really is and who you really are in him. And as I said at the beginning of this message, it's far better experienced than it is explained. You have to experience it to the core of who you are. You have to open yourself up to the reality of God's love for you, you have to face and name all of the lesser gods you've created in your mind and maybe even given your life to so that you could actually fully open yourself up to the love of your perfect parent, your Abba. I wonder what would happen if you began to actually do that, to receive God's love for you to accept that you are chosen, that you are worthy, that you're desired, that you're wanted by God, and to begin to live like that. I wonder what kind of shifts might actually come in your life. I want to show you what we mean, and then we're gonna wrap up our message. So because you sat in the front row, I'm gonna need your help. Come on up. You're gonna be on stage today. Come on up. Yeah, did you leave your stuff? You're gonna go right back. Yeah, just come on up. Take a big step up. You got it? All right, good. Your name is Teresa. Teresa, everyone say hey to Teresa. Hey, Teresa, thanks for sitting in the front row. Probably the last time you'll ever do that. So thank you so much for doing that. All right, so Teresa, you're you, you're Teresa. For the next few moments, I'm God. Just go with it, all right? Just go with it. So what we have to do for this kind of transformational shift to happen, what you need to do is really face who you've made God out to be, what you think of when you think of God. So I don't know what Teresa's story is or what her view of God is, but maybe for you, this is your view of God. Arms crossed, back to you, disinterested, disengaged. And maybe for most of your life, this is what you, you showed up here today hoping that maybe God would turn around and notice you. This is how you've experienced God because this is how you view God. Maybe for you, your, your view of God is, is more like this. Just telling you all the things you do wrong. And he can keep going and going. Teresa, you're a great person. But he can keep going and going and going. And this is your whole view of God. You're wrong. You're bad. Your decisions have destroyed your life. There's no way you could earn my love. It sounds silly to say out loud, but it's the message we keep playing in our head. Or maybe for you, your view of God is something like this. I'll accept you, I'll accept you, but you're going to need to change this. I'll accept you. I'll accept you. You're you're loved, but not that part of your life. I'll accept you now, but we got to do something about your past. We got to fix up that mess. Maybe this is your view of God. Do you know how the Bible consistently, clearly says who God is and how we're to relate to Him? Thank you. I'm not done. (laughs) You're loved. You're loved. You're loved. That's who God is. And what would begin to happen if you began to open yourself up to this reality? Again, I can't explain it to you. You have to open yourself up to experience it for yourself. Can you imagine what might begin to shift in how you view yourself? Can you imagine what might begin to shift in how you view others? Because as we're going to talk about for the next couple weeks, this is how we're actually invited into relating to each other. See, This is so often how we relate to people that we don't know. I I don't know Teresa, I don't know her story. Maybe there's some things I can just look at on the surface about her, her life. And so this is what I do to her. I don't open myself up to loving her. I don't open myself up to knowing her because of all of my judgments and preconceived notions about who she is. Or maybe there's people in your life that you look at and it feels really good for you to tell them how really bad they are. And how they've messed their life up, and how they need to get it in order, get it in shape, clean it up. Go online, this is what you see. You're wrong. You're bad. Over and over with people you don't even know. Or, I'll love you if. I'll love you if. If you're more like me. If you vote like I vote. If you love like I love. I, I accept you, but you got to make some changes first. In the same way that God loves you, anyone want to guess how we're invited to love each other? I'm back. You're loved. Thank you, seriously. You're loved. That's the relationship we're invited to have with each other. Regardless of the color of someone's skin, regardless of their political preferences, regardless of their sexual orientation, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of whatever list you may have, God does not withhold love from you. So, why would I ever withhold love from someone else? You may not agree with them. You may not align your life the same way. That doesn't mean I can't love you. And I can't love you if I don't know you. This is what we're invited to do as brothers and sisters. We're going to talk about that more next week, but let's thank Teresa. She took a huge (laughs) risk. Thank you for coming with me. Brendan Manning in his brilliant and beautiful book, Abba's Child, said this. And I remember reading this in my early 20s when I had gotten to the end of a God who was disappointed in me, a God who I had to impress or improve to impress. I read this quote and it just broke me down. And it wasn't something I could cognitively wrap my head around. It's something I had to open my heart to. He says this, he says, to define yourself, to define yourself, radically, as one beloved by God. That's who you are. This is your true self. Every other identity is an illusion. Every other identity falls short. But the invitation for you, the invitation for me, is to define ourselves as one's radically loved by a perfect parent, our Abba. Every other thing falls short and fails you. But that love never will. That reality will not change. You're loved. You're loved. You're chosen. You're worthy. You're wanted. You're loved. And so the homework for this week is to practice what Jesus modeled, to practice what Paul taught us today. I want to encourage you to pray. I think it's a good idea. I think you should pray. It's a great way to stay connected with God all throughout the week. But here's how I want to ask you to pray this week. Instead of starting your prayers by like, dear God, God, I actually want to ask you every time you pray to consciously make a choice this week to start with Abba. Or Daddy. It's going to mess you up the first couple times. Especially if you have to like pray for lunch or a meal. You'll be like, oh my gosh, I really have to do this. Daddy, thank you. Watch what it does to your heart. Watch how it reframes your view of God. Watch how it opens you up to receiving his love and to extending his love to others. That's the homework. Every time you pray this week, to start with Abba or Daddy, I wonder what might happen when we come back together next week, how our hearts might be that much more open to God and to each other. So we're going to move into a time of responding to uh, God's love for us. We're going to give to God and we're going to sing to God. And we give not out of fear or obligation or guilt or because I have to or because God demands. We do it out of love. In fact, James 1.17 says that every perfect gift, every good and perfect gift that we receive comes from the Father of heavenly lights who literally showers down blessings on our life, that everything we have is a gift from Abba, our perfect parent. And so when we give to God, it's out of gratitude and joy. Thank you, Abba, for what you have done for me, how you've withheld nothing from me. And so God, I give to you, I give to what you're doing so that more people can know and ultimately experience your love. So in a moment, we're going to receive our offering. A lot of folks around here give online. and I think it's the best way to do it. A lot of you took that challenge last week, or maybe you got started but didn't finish signing up to just take a 90-day challenge of trusting God with your resources. A great way to do that is to do that online. But I want to pray for us right now as we give and respond to God. And I'd ask that as we close out in the song, you would open your heart to the reality of what we've seen here today, that there is a God who loves you and he invites you to choose to receive and extend that love from him and to others. So you join me in a prayer? Abba, Daddy, how you love to hear that word. How your heart delights when we see you for who you really are. A perfect parent. And God, we we just want to say that we want to not just cognitively know, but we want to transformationally experience the reality of your love. There's really not much else I could ever say, God, other than you love us, you love us, you love me. You choose me. And so God, help us to open ourselves to receive that, to not live in a spirit of fear, to let our views and assumptions about you lead us to all kinds of other gods other than you. But God, to come to you as you are, as we are, your children, to a perfect parent and say, Abba, Daddy, we cry out, we pour out our hearts to you, we open our arms to you, we run into your arms. And we just want to hear you say again to us that you love us, you love us, you love us, and we love you. That's why we give and why we sing in your holy and perfect name, amen.